let's just sort of jump straight in in terms of for anybody who has not read Mixed Other, I've read it, it's, it's, it's a piff book, it's banging. What <laughs> is the book about? The book is about what it means to be um, a person with mixed heritage in the UK today um, and the many the many, many nuances and complexities and joys and difficulties that come with that. It's such a multi-layered and diverse experience that I think is often flattened when we tend to talk about mixedness and being mixed in the mainstream and in mainstream spaces. Um, you know, there's, it's often reduced to something very simple, something very binary, and often excludes lots of different people who have mixed heritage. So I really wanted to kind of dig beyond those kind of old stereotypes and kind of tired ideas about what it means to be mixed and look at the realities um, that mixed people are living with today. Um, and that's all different kinds of mixes, not just people with black and white heritage. I wanted to look at people who are mixed without white heritage. That's something that's really important to me to try and decenter whiteness wherever possible. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, people um, who are mixed, but who present as, as white, um, people who have mixes that you don't necessarily see in 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 mainstream conversations so yeah it was it was a really fascinating process bringing all of that together um interviewing all these different people and blending that with my own experiences as a mixed black woman um and yeah it's been it's been incredible having it out in the world and, and seeing how people respond to it it's it's been it's been such a journey i've, I've really enjoyed it it's yeah, I'm I'm just listening back to everything that you just said, and I'm like, these are some of my questions that I'm going to come in with after. So excellent, excellent. The, <laughs> I'm just trying to think. Wow. Okay, so this is with this being your first book ever, mm -hmm. and obviously we're going through a pandemic. Mm. Emotionally, what where's what's been the mix of emotions for you? <laughs> oh my gosh, it has been an absolute emotional roller coaster. The whole process of producing a piece of work like this that's so personal in many ways um like you know like I, I said to you just before we started recording like I, I'd forgotten that people were actually going to read read it in a way because I was so holed up in my own little world in lockdown for most of it writing this book and pouring my heart into it and, and my own experiences and the experiences of my family um alongside all of these kind of intimate um, conversations that I had with all these different mixed people and it felt like a lot of responsibility to to share those stories so to to have that out in the world now and to have people engaging with it and sending me messages and feedback that has been so overwhelmingly positive and encouraging and just really validating basically the dream feedback that you want as a writer people telling you that your work has made them feel seen and it's exactly basically what what I was hoping for and what I wanted with when I started the book so that has been a hugely positive and um like emotionally rich experience for me um and I think it's it's felt so emotional as well because of the payoff is so huge um it was such hard work doing this alongside having a full-time job in a pandemic wow. um it was such hard work like it, I can't underestimate like I can't like overstate how hard it is to like wake up at 5am and like motivate yourself to write a certain amount of words before doing nine hours at your job and then every weekend day like writing and writing and writing and like 
it was um and it's what you want to do as a writer it's what you love and it's your passion and and you do it and and there's so much of it that I loved when I was really into it mm-hmm. and then there were certain points when it was like blood from a stone it was like so difficult and I was like drained and the deadline was looming so just to to get across the line in the circumstances that we were in I feel like mad proud of myself and of everyone who helped me get through that Um, I had amazing support systems and yeah just to see a book with my name on it in shelves like in actual bookshelves in actual shops it's, 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 it's still a madness I'm not I'm not used <laughs> to it at all like I'm still like absolutely tripping every time I go into like Waterstones I'm like oh this is what I wanted since I was like eight years old so yeah it's been amazing that's so that's so interesting Waterstones because even just as a bookstore you know we've gone in how many times and just exactly to see like yo this <laughs> this is my book I know it's yeah it feels good <laughs> I just want to, I wanted to ask you a question just based on, I know you're an author now, but you also, like you said, you're nine to five, you are a journalist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Deadlines wise, what would you say? Are you someone who is very good at work in advance or do you, do you get, do you get hyped at, okay, cool. I've really got to get to the deadline. What's your, what's your work style? Mm, my work style. Uh, so, and this is one of the interesting things with the book because it was so different to any other kind of work that I've ever done mm. so in my nine to five like we work on really really tight deadlines every single day like we're we're, we're turning stuff around so quickly um, we're reacting to things that are happening today yesterday mm-hmm. like these articles need to come out five minutes ago so we're like going quick 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 all the time and I'm used to that I'm used to that kind of pace that pressure I also love I love to tick things off my list so I love getting stuff done I'm like yeah that's done what's next what's next what's next and then with the book it was such a shift such a mental shift to be like okay this is this huge 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 project that is going to take me the best part of well I think in total from inception it took about two years probably about 18 months of actual work okay and I've never I've never worked on a deadline that's that long before Mm. like and I found that very difficult to not be able to like tick it off and be like it's done it was just ongoing so and that's which means it's like always there always in looming your mind like yeah like no matter what you're doing like right I'm having fun this weekend I'm giving myself the day off it's all it's still there it's like a little shadowy presence like okay (laughs) yeah you you have your fun but but you know when you're done you've got to come back and do this like this isn't over so it was this kind of like looming specter hanging over me for like a really long time and that was a really kind of difficult shift to make from being like a a quick turnaround digital journalist to Mm. this kind of long form project Um, and and there's so much value in it and I think like I said about the payoff being so enormous because it it, because it has taken you this long and you poured so much into it but on a day-to-day I did find that challenging Um, I was just like it just felt like you've always got homework to do all the time, like, which was quite hard. Completely, <laughs> completely. Well, I mean, you've picked it off your list now, though. It's, yeah, it's... now it's ticked, which <laughs> I'm very happy about, yeah. Safely off the list. Mm-hmm. So you said you started the process in 2019. Mm-hmm. So looking back at 2019, what was life like for you in general before the pandemic? Life was great. Wow, I didn't know how great it was. Um it was really, really 
fine and good and normal in a way that I didn't know to appreciate because it was just my life um, yeah life was fine I was um obviously commuting into into the office uh living with my partner in North London everything ticking along great um I'd been in my current job at, at metro.co.uk for about a year at that point um, was building up doing a lot of like kind of anti-racism work and, and getting into my flow of, of doing those different series. I was writing my series specifically on mixed identity which is kind of how the book came into being in in the first place um, cool. and and yeah and, what, and what's interesting I think is that this book started I started my work on it kind of quite a bit before the like Black Lives Matter summer of 2020 and I mm. think a lot of like subsequently since the book has come out like a lot of the interviews have kind of been about like oh why is this moment the moment to be having these discussions and I think there's a tendency to think that it's something reactionary to to what was happening and a part of this kind of movement of you know all of the different kind of anti-racist guides that are coming out and all those reading lists of how to be an ally and how to not be a racist mm, and mm, all mm. of that um <laughs> so I'm always very keen to like impress that like this was happening before this wasn't like a reaction to the protests and amen and, amen you know? mm. I always <laughs> I always find myself rolling my eyes I talk a lot about race and just books in general and people mm. say you know what books can we read now and I'm like yo these books these books did not come out in 2020. Like, I get mm. that some of you guys have just taken the eye boogers out of your eyes, but people <laughs> have been talking about this stuff yeah. for for years and years. Look, if you even go, look, you got um, Baldwin. You look at so many France fans. Yeah. You've got so many people who have been talking about this for so long, mm. and it's just interesting. Mm. So, so now at Metro, you're writing pretty much countless articles. So you're touching on everything from lifestyle to race mental yeah. health as well mm -hmm. yep so effectively your work is everywhere I, I think would be a, a, a clear statement <laughs> how how does an aspiring journalist work towards building their portfolio like you hmm I think it's I think it's about openness um willingness to be to be flexible and to adapt to to what is needed and in, in the situation where you're working I think what I've always what I've always um, really liked to do is to kind of strike a balance between doing what is needed on the desk that you're on. You know, mm -hmm. there's, there's always a certain quota of, of, of stories that just need to be covered. And, and that is ultimately your job as a journalist to cover those stories. You don't just get to do the stuff you want to do and what you really care about, particularly at first. You do have mm -hmm. to build up to that. Um, so it's kind of about having that patience. Um, I found my strategy anyways was to kind of prove my worth, show my employees and the people around me that I was a safe pair of hands, that I can I can write about all different kinds of things, that I can turn my hand to anything. And then you start to, once people have confidence in you, you start to, to pitch your own ideas more and more. Um, and once you're able to do that and, and, and people see that that works and um, the, the stuff that you're producing um, hits an audience and, and connects with people, then they will you know inevitably give you more space to to pursue to pursue that stuff to pursue the stuff that you're really interested in um i think lifestyle as a whole is, is a really nice area to go in in terms of having that 
uh, breadth, which is something that I'm really interested in because I've, I've I, I have like really varied interests. I, I write about women in sports and um, and like you said, mental health as well as all the stuff about race and then you know beauty and travel and fashion and all of the other stuff that fall under the lifestyle heading. Um, and often I will take those kind of elements and find an a kind of angle within that. That, that suits my kind of brief and what I'm about. So I won't just look at, you know, the, the fashion trends. I'll look at, you know, uh, how fashion is interacting um, with, with race and racism and, and just, just finding these different angles that aren't necessarily being covered um, just in, the, in, in other mainstream spaces. And I think that's how you're, you can build up your own niche really. Um, while still keeping your options open to cover lots of different things. Um, but I'm, I'm lucky, like my, my um, employers, my uh, line manager, my editors are all really accommodating um, and trusting. And from very early on, I was given a lot of kind of autonomy in, um, in choosing what I wanted to write about and following things that I was passionate about. So I think if you can find um, editors who who are like that and who, who put trust in you. I think that's one of the most valuable things you can find at, at, in, on a news desk. Completely. You, mm. You've touched on something which I was going to ask you, but I think you've answered it already. And <laughs> that, that was on the basis that some people worry that if they discuss race openly, that they, they, can, they can box themselves and only be giving pictures and things that are only related to race. Mm-hmm. But as you said, it's sometimes making picking up the mainstream topics and centering it. So to make sure that effectively both, both are ticks. Your editor yeah. gets the, the lifestyle or whatever a segment, but you also get to add your flair on it, right? Exactly, exactly. I understand that fear though, that fear of kind of being pigeonholed. Um, and it's kind of a, again, a balancing act, I think. Um, and, and it's funny because I think it really comes down to preference and I don't think anyone... Um, any journalist of colour um, should feel that they have to go down that route if mm. it's not something they they want to do. And I think more editors should be allowing black journalists to cover non-race issues because we have the scope, obviously. We can talk about anything. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it's something I feel compelled to do. I want to talk about racism. I want to talk about social injustice. That's something that I am, uh, I want to do, that's the space I've, I've decided and chosen to step into. Um, but it's about, I do, I do sometimes feel that kind of contention between, am I, I don't know, am I being like tokenized um, in certain spaces and you don't, and of course you don't want that. So it is about, it's about finding your, um, your flair and making sure, like you say, your flair and not not allowing yourself to be pushed down a certain route, making sure you're the one going down it for your own reasons, I guess. Yeah, no, no, completely. I, I remember reading a specific chapter in your book and you spoke about Meghan Markle naturally came came up into the conversation. I mean, uh-huh. I, I would be mad surprised if it, if it didn't come up, to be honest. <laughs> but you spoke about being hired and you said you were asked certain questions and it's almost like the people weren't prepared or they want you to sort of be a bit soft about the answer and you just went in strong and mm. the, 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 the issue of sometimes even you, you then see someone as mixed and assume that they are completely, okay, mixed is just a box and you can speak for everyone. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I really liked how you've been able to challenge and say, actually, I mix, but we're not all the same. And I feel like this book has really hit the nail that there are a breadth of people that identify as mixed, but for the main part, may not have anything in common other than the fact that they are mixed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, no, that's 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 definitely something I wanted to to get across um, in the book. And, and yeah, that that interaction at the wedding, um, I, I was asked to, to be a guest on, on BBC radio um, to kind of like be one of their commentators because I'd written a few articles about Megan and um, yeah, I don't think they were ready uh, for for the for the fire that I brought. <laughs> um, I think they wanted a nice conversation about about Megan's dress and how um, how beautiful she was and how this was a really progressive step and how it meant you know racism doesn't exist because we have a black princess yada yada. Um, all of these things I obviously did not subscribe to and you know was was quick to tell them that um but yeah it's interesting how um they they reacted to that and and it's not it's really clearly not what they wanted they'd obviously they wanted a specific kind of conversation um around Megan and her inclusion in the royal family Mm. um and what that represented and and I just really wanted to kind of challenge the the limits of, of representation politics and particularly as mixed women um when you know, a very specific kind of mixed person is kind of pushed to the fore and put as the poster girl or used in this example of this kind of, um, yeah, like liberal progressive step forward when really there is so much more in that. And, you know, I think in the book I say, would would Megan have even been at the church that day if she if she didn't have white heritage, if she didn't look a certain way, if she didn't have a certain skin tone, for example? Um, and and that's it, it's almost a microcosm of 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 how um, representation is experienced in in media and for journalists as well. And I'm I'm very conscious of of being a mixed light skinned woman with white heritage and the opportunities that affords to me and what I do with with that privilege in those in those spaces. Um, so yeah, it's it's something I'm I'm very conscious of, particularly when I'm talking about race um, and racism and just having an, an awareness of, of those privileges and I think it's important to not take up space um, where another voice will be better but that, that can be quite a difficult thing to, to achieve I think. Mm-hmm. I think the, the taking up space views and opinion is also quite rife. I, I see it a lot mm. on Twitter and in Clubhouse and things where there is a big discussion about at sometimes you get some people, I'd say on one side, you get some black people that don't feel com- comfortable with mixed race black people speaking on their behalf. Mm-hmm. But then also some mixed people say, well, where, 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 where is our place? And also there is a degree of, I may not experience some of the prejudice that you face to the extreme, particularly when, we, when we're bringing in colorism and dark skin shades. But mm-hmm. especially if I still class myself as a black woman, where do I stand? And I've, I've seen that conversation go back and forth and I haven't I haven't seen anything constructive in terms of a way of a selective way forward but I've seen that it's definitely a big talking point it really is and I find that something very hard to navigate um even you know even as recently as the other day I, I wrote an article um about um when Eamon Holmes uh 
referred to uh, Dr. Zoe Williams um, hair. Yeah. yeah, he said her hair was like an alpaca and that he wanted to pet it, um, which obviously <laughs> was wildly problematic. Like what a thing to say. So mm. I wrote an article about that um, and I referred to, um, I, I had the picture of, of Dr. Zoe in the headline and um, sorry, on, on the homepage and the headline um, was about why you shouldn't refer to black women's hair as, as animal fur. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, and one of the kind of comments I got was um, that you shouldn't, I shouldn't have put that in the headline because she's not a, a black woman, um, which I think, you know, m really misses the point um, and it almost derails derails the argument derails what we're trying to do at times so that can that can be frustrating um and and I get you know I get comments like that in in my direct messages and emails occasionally nowhere near to the level that I get from just like white racists just as an aside but you know those comments do happen mm -hmm. um and I think I think I've thought about it a lot whilst talking about the book and, and trying to navigate these spaces um and I, I think that the way that I think we get through this and we move beyond this kind of like stagnation, it feels like a really stagnant point, like mm. you say, that, that we can't get through it, um, is to just, is an acknowledgement of privilege on all sides, is mm -hmm. for, for people who are mixed and have privilege to not be defensive and, um, and to acknowledge that and to also um, accept that you, that two things can be true at once, that you can experience racism and discrimination and hold privilege in certain circumstances and that both things can exist at the same time within one person within one situation um, and also looking at the privilege side in terms of it being quite fluid and also I found that you don't necessarily have that much control over your privilege when you're a mixed person like you don't get to decide when you're going to use your white privilege and when and when you're not often it's because it's so much dependent on how other people view you mm -hmm. um, in any in any context um so I think it's just having an awareness of all of those things um and again allowing people to empowering people to 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 self-identify I think is really important because it's when people start telling you what you are and what you're not that is that when it becomes a problem um oh, yeah yeah, that's that's I think the one of the the best ways to to move it forward. No, no, I hear you. I hear you completely. I've, I'm always interested. I I have conversations with a lot of my friends. I identify as black. My mum is um, Creole, and my yeah. dad is black Nigerian. And mm. my my mum used to always say to me, and my little sister will say that she's mixed. And I used to look at her and say, "I'll oh, stop forcing it. You're not mixed. You're just black." Yeah. Because I've always I suppose I've looked at it as even though my mum is very light and she, I, I wouldn't even say she passes as white, she can pass sort of Portuguese and like various nations, but okay. she wouldn't pass as an, uh, an English white woman. Yeah. But I've always said that being raised and sort of with my dad, who's very clearly a black man, tall man, dark skinned dreadlocks, we've been raised to be black. So there has mm -hmm. not been a, a mixture where, for example, you have a parent of a different race or grandparents where you can see yeah. the, clear, the clear shift. But Definitely. I found it interesting and I, I felt like I was able to understand my sister a lot more after reading your book because I said, actually, mm. okay, I can see. I mean, I still wouldn't identify how she does, but it is, yeah. identity is a very personal thing. Yeah. And 
as long as, I mean, you're not playing for me the transracial thing where you are clearly white and saying that, you know, mixed or black, then I mean, yeah. <laughs> I can, I can, I can, I can let it have it. Mm. But you, you spoke about in being empowered. And my question is, as a mixed race black journalist, what mm-hmm. empowers you? Oh, that's a good question. I like that question. What empowers me? Um, I think it's something that has changed over time. Um, so I've been, what well, I've been in journalism now for maybe six, seven years um, in total. And I think that that my, my feeling of um, power in a way and kind of autonomy and confidence grows every year that I do this. Um, so I'm partially empowered just by um, my level of experience and by doing it for however for for a certain amount of time the more time that passes the more experiences I kind of get under my belt the more I feel empowered to speak up in certain spaces to uh, push my ideas forward to you know uh, try try new things and to try and reach different audiences Um, I think another thing as as I kind of mentioned before that empowers me is having bosses and editors who understand what you're trying to do who don't try to pigeonhole you or to push you down a certain route and who are completely open to hearing your perspectives and hearing diverse perspectives more generally in the newsroom Mm -hmm. um newsrooms are as we probably all know like overwhelmingly white and middle class, upper middle class even. Um, and so if you're a, like a, a, a black or Northern even, or from a public school, um, these are all things that kind of work against you in those spaces because you are minoritized immediately when you step into, into those newsrooms you're in. And the amount of meetings, morning meetings I've been in, these are the meetings where people are literally deciding which stories are worthy of going on the agenda, which stories are going to make the running order for tonight's news news at six o'clock and 10 o'clock and what's going to be on the front page of of the news website and what's going to be pushed out onto Twitter for thousands and thousands of people to see. Um, And if you sit in those meetings and you're the only person who isn't white in that space, like that that is a that is disempowering in itself because you're you're seeing that your voice your experiences aren't valid aren't viewed as worthy um to to make the news and that's that's not just a like a superficial argument about about inclusion and diversity and oh I want to see more people like me in those in those newsrooms yes I do obviously like that would be nice and it would be helpful in terms of work environment but so much more importantly than that a lack of diversity in those spaces is is damaging the the like the psyche of the country by not reflecting what's actually happening um so and and to see that firsthand was was has been quite shocking for me over my over my career um so I think what empowers me is when I see um black journalists and black editors being um having the space to to make decisions having the space to influence the news agenda um and 
give different perspectives on on stories and how they should be told because I think that's the only way we're going to see uh, changes in the way the UK media works and operates um, and that's been something that's in, been encouraging to me because I've seen more of that happen over the last uh, seven years since I started my career in journalism so that that empowers me to see that because it makes me think okay there is there is a space for me in this industry I can move up to those spaces I can be one of those people who has a voice and is influencing how stories are being told and therefore how people see the world because you know how many times do you you speak to people and you think okay you've swallowed a certain tabloid and now that's how your brain works um, so if we can, you know, do the same with different views, that that's such a powerful thing to be able to do. Um, completely. I also just remembered something I've read in the book. Sorry, I've got a whole bag of notes, as you can probably I've been <laughs> taking my notes. You've been in the industry for some reason. I felt that you'd been in, in the industry for a lot longer. But I've just remembered you. So your father was also in the industry. Yes. Do, do you think that that has because I'm assuming he'd come home and talk a lot about his job and the the what's the specific word the layouts yeah. of the industry yeah do you think that that's played a part in your motivation to want to get in and kind of hit the ball running yeah I guess so it, it's interesting um because I think yeah so so dad uh was um a presenter for ITV News for many many years and before that BBC and he, he did he did a lot of presenting over the cool. years um and I never consciously tried to go down that route um like following his footsteps I wasn't like oh dad's a journalist I'm going to be a journalist it kind of happened much more organically um and I, and I tried uh, broadcast, I was at ITV News myself, uh, did mm -hmm. the trainee scheme there for a few years. Um, and then I've realized that writing is, is what, I, what I love and, and that's why I've gone back into, into kind of print digital side of journalism. Um, but I think having, having dad in the industry subconsciously sank into me and made me think that I wanna do that too because like he was my, ultimate inspiration um and yeah I just still look up to everything that he achieved as a as a, a man a black man who grew up in institutions he was he was in foster care um for the whole of his childhood and then went went into the RAF and had no really qualifications to his name and, and still managed to 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 be so successful in the industry um now even like now having been in the industry that means so much more to me seeing how difficult it is to progress and how elitist and exclusive this world is to actually think that a dad my dad with the background that he had made it to the position that he was in it's kind of un unbelievable like I, I actually now that I think about it I'm like that that is actually mad and I don't think I appreciated that before I was actually working it was just like oh yeah that's just dad's job and now I'm like how did you do that? Like, it's such a, it's such a cliquey kind of, um, like I say, elitist profession. Um, so I think he massively inspired me to, to try to push on. Um, and a lot of his experiences kind of gave me a bit of a warning as to, as to how certain areas might be. Um, yeah. And he's definitely been proved right in a lot of those cases. <laughs> yeah. That is, it's when you, when you look, obviously your dad would have used a whole generation before us. So to mm. look, do you feel that there has been at least some sort of 
progression has it when I say easier not in the sense that you haven't worked hard but do you think it has been easier for mixed race black people to enter the mm. building with the fact with, with with people like your dad coming in and maybe taking a lot more of the brunt I mean yeah like they they uh his generation absolutely blazed the trail for us open doors that weren't open before um at the same time though um there hasn't been anywhere near as much kind of progression as you would hope in all of that time mm. in what 30 40 years this the journalism still 94% white how is that the case when people like my dad were in the building in the 80s how is it still so so limited um the the number of people and I also think you know I, I talk about dad not having any qualifications he didn't go to university he had two O levels to his name um and he managed to get in the in the building and, and prove himself with with his talents and I don't know whether that would happen now um mm. So in a way, it's almost got harder. It's almost become more elitist. Um, I did the ITV trainee scheme. Every other person, pretty much every other person on that scheme with me the year that I did it had done a master's in journalism from, okay. from, from City University. So okay. it was from, they, they'd all done the one course, pretty much. Everyone on that scheme, apart from me and like maybe one or two others. And I was like, system. They just, they just very much so. One by one together, like never thought. Yeah, absolutely. And I was like, wow, this is so limited. The pool that they are choosing people from is mm -hmm. unbelievably small. Um, so I don't know. I don't I don't think there's been anywhere near enough progression. And I think in some ways it might be even harder to get a foot in the door now. Yes. You know, now that you've just said that, that has reminded me when I look. So I, I do I freelance in broadcast mm. journalism, mainly just mm -hmm. audio producing. But I think when when people mixed mixed black mixed in general and, and black, let's say, because mm -hmm. this is just from my personal perspective and experience that I've seen, when they do come in the building, I definitely think there is a bit of a there's a stereotype where they're looking for the certain type of other person. They want you to have gone from Oxbridge or Cambridge, and mm -hmm. there has you have to tick so many almost like the only other can be your color everything else needs to be yes. tip top top and you have to make up for it oh and my if God. you do not yes. fit the if you do not fit into that box one they will either try and bend you or they will just mm. do passive slash aggressive things to sort of make mm -hmm. it clear that you need to shape up or get out and I, I, I've, so I've, I've had that and it's it's crazy where you have to resist and make it your business to thrive being who you are yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, I think that is something that I've I've really noticed um, in so many spaces. I talk about in the book, and it's something I'm I'm really conscious about with myself as well. Um, because, like I've said to you, I, I'm always trying to be like conscious of my privilege and how it works and and interacts in different spaces. And and so for me to be kind of held up in <clears throat> in these spaces as some kind of like emblem of of diversity um feels so disingenuous because because I I did go to a, I went to a grammar school and I went to a red brick university and my Ooh. dad and well I know <laughs> and I went to and my dad was a journalist so it's like you know in a way I'm so similar to so many of the people who already work in these spaces apart mm. from the color of my skin which I think 
feels like such um such a lie when when i'm put you know when i go to do panel talks or i do um conversations with people and they're like yeah look look at our newsroom because look at look at her face like she's brown um and i'm like "Mm," but i'm like literally like one step removed from all these other like grammar school kids um who are who are in these spaces uh, who are parents who are also journalists and so you know have all this kind of you know inbuilt knowledge about the industry and how it works and all of this and how stuff. to navigate it effectively. and how to navigate it exactly and also you know alongside that the kind of my the palatability of having white heritage and and also just being around white people growing up and and so knowing how to code switch really really easily in spaces that you know i think a lot of monoracial people um wouldn't necessarily have so easily mm. so I think it's a really kind of layered thing. Um, And I talk about an example in the book where I was asked to go and speak to a load of kids from this college in in like inner city London, like this Lewisham college. Mm -hmm. Um, And they were all black and brown kids. Um, And my manager specifically, this is where I worked before, my manager specifically singled me out to be like, oh, Natalie, you go talk to them. And I was like, what? Why me? Like, and they, he was like, yeah, you're young, you can talk to them. I was like, I'm literally, I was 27 at the time and there were people in their early twenties in that newsroom. And mm. I was like, just say what you, like say why you really want me to go and talk to them. They wanted because... the hashtag, hashtag exotic you. You were- Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I was like, oh, and then it's it's really difficult because you know what's happening. You know why they, they want to parade you and and go and show you off in front of these, like this diverse group of kids. Um, but it feels like a lie. It feels like, and and you and you're t- and I felt really torn because I was like, yeah, of course I want to go and talk to them and, and try and encourage them to come into journalism because we need people from diverse backgrounds, not just people with different coloured skin, people with actually diverse lived experiences mm-hmm. from different areas um, and with different, you know, all different experiences. But at the same time, I don't want to spin them a lie and tell them that it's going to be easy or that they're going to be able to progress in these spaces that aren't built for people like them. Um, so it's, it's a really difficult line to walk when you're kind of being pushed out to, to go and sell this industry in a way, mm. because you want to, but you don't want to lie to people or, or present, present some kind of false picture of this like diverse utopia that, that truly doesn't exist, you know? No, not at all. I've I've always been very mindful in those situations when I give talks at universities and even colleges. I tell mm-hmm. them straight. I say, yeah, there are things. I mean, I'm I'm working class. First, and yeah. out of my parents to go uni and just mm. effectively from the hood, which I'm com- completely <laughs> proud about. Mm-hmm. But I I tell people, you know, you are going to work hard and there are going to be things because I think, I think I feel like I owe it to people to be honest. And yes. also being raised, like I said, for me, as uh, with a black man, he's yeah. always, he hasn't raised us with a sort of closed door fairyland mentality. It's always been, you are going to work 10 times as harder. And yeah. I think that some people say, oh, you can't say that because that's going to put people for make them scared. And for, I, I know it's definitely, it comes down to e- in each individual, but mm. I definitely think that that's a motivator more than anything, because you know that, mm. okay, if I can see some people in there that some have got in, so it is possible to get in. But it's just making sure that you you understand that you are going to have to stay motivated, even in the times where you're going to be getting doors shut. And I think that we should be telling people that more. I think you're completely right. And I think that honesty is the only way. 
I don't, I think, and, I, and I've seen what happens when, when the truth isn't told, when people are, are, are brought in to these, into these spaces mm. on, you know, that there are these kind of internships or um, diversity schemes that kind of bring a load of, um, a load of people from diverse backgrounds into these, into these worlds, um, essentially ticking off their quota um, yeah. for the year and then not, fostering an environment that's going to allow them to thrive um and that is and that is so damaging it I've seen people's confidence be completely destroyed by that by being in an environment that's quite hostile towards them um where they don't feel they fit in where they don't feel they belong where they're not being listened to they're they're being overlooked repeatedly Mm. um and people leave the industry altogether I've seen that happen so much um, and it's so disappointing and demoralizing for people. Um, so I think we really need to find a way of not just where, where getting people in the door is only the first step. I think too many organizations are so focused on getting diverse people into the door and then they think their job is done. Yes. And retention then, gets completely oh, yeah. left. Because how that's more important. Exactly. Even I'm just thinking of from what I know about research and that we've we've got all these schemes of family people that are in the industry. But in terms of those who have stayed, I know people who have gone into departments that have been notoriously white. Mm-hmm. They've been there for a year, maybe two, and they have mm-hmm. not stayed. And mm-hmm. the question is, why haven't they stayed? And I don't think we are looking into those things enough. We are not. And it, it's such a shame because organisations are hemorrhaging black and diverse talent um, that is that is vital like I've you know we'll have all seen what happens in newsrooms where you don't have anybody in that newsroom to to fact check to call out stories to make sure things are being presented in a in a culturally sensitive and you know just accurate way um, that, that really reflects different areas of the country and different communities and when you don't have those people you see what happens you see the headlines you see the mix-ups where people get the wrong name or people use a slur that they think is acceptable in an article or on a news broadcast mm. you know that there's no there's nobody in that newsroom who has enough power to say I don't think we should say that I don't think that should go out on the news yeah um and yeah, so that's where these controversy, and then and then they get themselves in hot water, and they're backpedaling and they're publishing apologies. And I'm like, this would be fixed if you had some black people in your newsroom to tell you that's a terrible idea. Exactly. I'm, I guess think you you guys are putting a lot of money to the PR people making them apologize. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> when we'll you should just be hiring, <laughs> you need to hire fact checkers, fact checkers rather than the PR people to sort out your mess. I remember the picture I saw. I woke up. And I only know that I remember this picture because I've just like had a crush on this artist since I was honestly a teenager. <laughs> and they were talk- I'm pretty sure they were talking about Wiley one day and I saw Kano's <laughs> picture come up. And oh. I was like, oh, how are you doing my boo like that? Like, oh, how dare you? How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, okay, they're from East London, tick. Black men, tick. <laughs> Bold head, tick. <laughs> like, how... At what part did you think, okay, let me go mm. double check or triple check? I'm pretty sure they did it with like Stormzy and a footballer as well. Yeah, 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 they did. Um, it ha- I mean, it happens all the time. <laughs> we have these stories like like once a month, it's like clockwork. And it's just, I just think it it is really reflective of the lack of, um, lack of diverse knowledge that's in those rooms. Like this is so much, like it's so much deeper than a question of aesthetics. I think people are still approaching this as a, okay, we need to look 
like a rainbow newsroom so that there's every every box is ticked off and look how diverse it looks and that's not even what it's about it's not even about representation really it's about having people who are shaping the news and shaping the stories and have and, and not just in you know in the intern and entry entry level positions like we have to retain people get them to stay at organizations get them to progress so that they're in positions where they can call people out where they're the editors where they're telling people which stories are the most important that day you know completely and just like you said about interns and low level people and I think we need to also be paying people for their expertise and paying people for what they're doing and that that would go into developing them and making sure that they stay because I think it's very easy for the editor to come down and particularly when you are in these low-level jobs. I mean, I, I've been in them and you almost feel grateful, like, yay, this is why editors notice me. Mm-hmm. And then you suddenly figure out, hold on a second, you're asking me questions, which I'm pretty sure I'm going to have to do extra research on. And one last thing that I would love to add, which I would love your thoughts on, mm-hmm. I saw a tweet and I loved it. And the tweet said, not all black people are activists. Hmm. And I really, for me, I, I love that because I find in the in the in the industry in the workplace you get people tweeting and you're asking what's your views on this and what's your thoughts and you think one I may not have even seen it but two what made you think I even cover these stories mm. yeah it's really um oversimplified it's limiting it's kind of again that pigeonholing of being mm. like okay well let's ask let's ask Natalie to do this story um and it I think where that's really telling for me is, is when I'm asked by producers to come on to the radio to talk about X story, Y story. And like you say, often it's stories that I haven't even seen. Like mm. I, I, if, it's, if it's something that I've written about, if I've written an article or I've done like a tweet thread that's like doing numbers and these producers are like, oh, let's get her on, she's got some opinions. Obviously that makes sense. But yeah. I'm, getting, I'm getting requests about generic black issue stories that I have not said one word on. So why are you asking me to come and talk about this? Why are you presuming that I have an opinion um, or that I want to like wade into this debate having not said a word so far? It's like, why, why would I do that to myself? Like, no. And um, you know, and there's been lots published about how these debates are are framed and, and what, what the actual value of them is. And, and my, my, like, you know, and my experience of a lot of them has been, um, actually just every single time I've gone on I've just had to prove that racism exists as opposed to actually discussing the story or the impact or how we move this on or what needs to happen next um Mm. you know I'll often be asked okay well give me an example of when this has happened to you and you end up proving your own lived experiences and having to like actually (laughs) just like yeah just tell people that you know racism is a thing um so I, I think that we have to look at how how these debates are being framed. We have to look at who we're expecting to take on the kind of the labor of, of being involved in these in these debates because it's not just you go on, you do your 10 minutes on, on the radio and then you get on with your day. Like these interactions sit with you, you get trolled for it, you get emails, you get death threats for, for, wow. for saying these opinions. Um, and that shouldn't be taken lightly. And I think too many producers and, and editors of, of these shows who are trying to kind of capitalize on debates around racism need to realize that there are people with actual lived experiences at the heart of these debates. This isn't just a debate for clicks. So you have to be more mindful of who you're asking 
to be an activist who you're asking to come and commentate on these issues and why and what is the benefit and who's benefiting from those debates? Yeah, yeah, I, I think that is one of the most important things. Who is benefiting? Is this educational or is this entertainment? And I think mm. there is a very big difference between the two. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a huge difference. And I think that the problem is that the people who are asked to come on and commentate have a very different idea of it than the people who are who are organizing and editing the program mm. and I find that too often it's the editors and the producers who are viewing it more as entertainment and a source for traffic and the people who are coming on are thinking this is an education and we're going to have a nuanced um, considered debate and very quickly it devolves into something that absolutely isn't that um, so yeah I think that's why I'm I'm very 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 wary of these requests now um, I think at first I thought they were a really good opportunity to kind of get your opinion out there and to mm. and to to challenge, uh, you know, challenge certain conversations. Um, but you don't really have a lot of control in those situations. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, I hear you completely. And on that note, I am going to wrap up. But thank you so much for speaking to me. Literally, I actually feel like I've been catching up with one of my homegirls. So, <laughs> Same, it's been nice. so nice. Yeah, thank you. It was a brilliant chat. Thanks so much.